his son. And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Well, good morning, everyone. I haven't been here the last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, we had our annual men's retreat, Man Maker. Let's hear for Man Maker. It was awesome, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 Mike did an excellent job of teaching. Uh, Mike and I met this week along with Andrew Krigler. We're already working on next year. So if you're the male persuasion and you were not part of it, let me encourage you next year, it's going to be even better. Like it's going to be like, you know, packaging 30% larger, better, 30% better next year. I promise you. I have no idea how I'm going to live up to that, but it's going to be 30% better. Um, last week, by the way, last week I was not here because Kirsten and I got to do something rare. And that was as pastors, we had a weekend getaway. We went to New Orleans with, uh, with uh, Dan and Alicia DeCrizio. So let me just go ahead and tell you now. If you ever want to go to New Orleans, go with Dan and Alicia. Like, if you don't know Dan and Alicia, they've been with us since nearly the beginning. But Dan and Alicia are to New Orleans in terms of passion and devotion, the way that a 13-year-old teenage girl is to Taylor Swift. I mean, it is commitment, okay? Underline that word, commitment. I mean, it wasn't just the food and the drink. Like, I mean, he was a great tour guide. By the way, he says that when he retires, he's retiring to New Orleans, and he's going to be a tour guide in New Orleans. Believe me, he's going to be amazing at that job. All right, uh, but we had a great time, awesome music, as you can imagine, in New Orleans. But one of the highlights, beyond just the obvious ones there, was actually in the airport when we were coming home. And so uh, we're sitting down at the airport, and we look up, and suddenly in a wheelchair, obviously slowly rolling by, was former Mayor Andrew Young. And um, this is a picture we throw up here. And so this is awesome. So some of you know I love politics and history. Now, He's 91 years old now, so he's living history, <laughs> after all. And so Kirsten, when I said, hey, it's Andrew Young, she goes, who? So let me, just in case you don't know, let me just go ahead and tell you who he is. Like, this is a guy, he was like, he's a civil rights legend. Uh, he was with Dr. King when he was assassinated on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. And he continued in the civil rights movement after that, he became a congressman here in Georgia for a number of years in the 70s, President uh, Carter appointed him to be the ambassador to the United Nations. And so he rubbed shoulders with uh, the kings and queens, the power brokers of the world for years. And then he became mayor of Atlanta. And then, you know, just to round out his resume, he brought the Olympics here in 1996. And so that changed forever the imprint. Some of you know that quite well. And, uh, and so how cool. And so like I got to, like he was there for a silent retreat. Isn't that crazy? He was in New Orleans for a silent retreat. And I was like, hey, man, I do silent retreats as well. Like, <laughs> and literally I said that. I was like, I'm thinking, hey, you want to come to one of mine here in the future? <laughs> kind of thing like that. Uh, but anyway, he was great. I told him I was a pastor. He's like, tell me about your church, that sort of thing like that. He's a Christian. And so 
Yeah, he, he really was excited to hear about City Church, actually. And he's like, hey, man, I'm going to send you a book. And he did two days ago. And uh, he signed in everything. So we're now besties, let me tell you. <laughs> we're besties, I'm telling you. All right. What does that have to do with the sermon? Absolutely nothing. Um, but I want you to know about it. It was, a, it was an awesome weekend. It was a great way. Normally you get in the plane, you're like, ah, oh, it's all over. And I was like hyperventilating. I was so excited. Living history, a legend, someone that I look up to and admire. Um, yeah, okay, moving on. All right, so this passage, so we're back in Mark's gospel, and it, some of you, I look around, you're brand new, like, or you haven't been here in forever. And, and so it, it you know, bears repeating every now and then, why are we doing this? Why are we in Mark's gospel? Have been for like 14 months now. We still have a few more months to go. Why are we doing that? Well, it's because, you know, for those of us who are practicing Christians, we have to ask the question, how do we practice our faith? What does it look like? And if you really want to know what does it look like to practice the faith, look at the life and the death of Jesus Christ. So there's that. But if you're here this morning and, and perhaps you're saying, man, I, I'm not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, what questions should I be asking? And this is the question you should be asking. Not does God exist, right? Um, even, even the demons believe that God exists, James tells us. But we need to be asked the question, who is Jesus? Like at, the, at the core of our faith is a person and his life and his death and, of course, his resurrection. And so if you're here this morning, welcome, first of all, if you are on a journey spiritually. But I want to say, man, what a great time to be asking the question, who is Jesus? That's what this series is about. So glad you're part of it with us. And this morning we're looking at a text that, honestly, it looks like a hodgepodge, doesn't it? You know, Jesus, there's something about his lineage. And then he like goes off on the scribes once again, and there's something about a widow giving money. Like, what in the world? Is this just like, Scott, you're, you're going verse by verse, you're trying to collect, make sure you, you dot all of your I's and cross all of your T's? No, it's one seamless message is what you're going to see this morning. And you know what that message is? Greatness and devotion. It's all about greatness and devotion. You see, over 25 years of ministry, I've had the opportunity to have plenty of people in my office or I visit with people. And you know one of the most common refrains I, I hear? It's like people say this, Scott, Pastor Scott, I want to be part of something bigger than myself. Like I've been doing this in the, in the business world, the marketplace, or this is my life. And I, but I want to be part of something bigger than me. Like, and, and the reason why you're asking that question, if you've ever asked that, is because you're made for something bigger. Like you, you've been designed for greatness. And, and as Kirsten said, that can happen between the Sundays with the work that you do. But I think this text positions us this morning to ask the question, how do we become great? And what is devotion anyway? So to get there this morning, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're to look at the greatest kingdom of all and the king behind that kingdom. What does a great kingdom look like? And then we're going to contrast it with what an impoverished kingdom looks like. We're going to see that in the religious leaders of all people. And then at this fork in the road between uh, the two alternatives, the two kingdoms that we get to pick from, there's an invitation from Jesus to be great. So you want to go on that journey with me? I, I want you to. You don't have a choice next 30 minutes anyway. So, hey, let's jump right in here, right? So verse 35, what we're going to see here in verse 35 is the first of two questions. Now, that's interesting because last week David taught on the greatest commandment. And you remember, if you were here, verse 34, it said they're tired of asking good questions. Right? He's been hammered day in and day out by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. But Jesus basically, you know, he gets in the ring with them. And every time it's a first round knockout. 
And so they're just tired of being punching bags, in essence. But Jesus is like, you may be done with questions, but I ain't done asking you questions. So first of two questions, verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, what's going on here? Son of David was a moniker for the Messiah. So whenever you saw the term son of David, it was a harbinger. We looked at this a couple weeks ago with blind Bartimaeus, son of David. And we've seen a few other times. Uh, son of David, it was, a, it was shorthand for Messiah. By the way, it says Christ there, Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. Uh, that is just a title. Most of you know that, but just in case, right? It's Messiah. But son of David was another way to describe that. Now, what the religious leaders were, were saying is we're looking, and, and Jesus was said rightfully so, we're looking for someone to come out of the lineage of David. So the, 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 the statement, as it were, that the Messiah will come out of the son of David, or from David, David's family, from that family line, that wasn't controversial. So why is Jesus bringing this up? Why, why is it, how can the scribes say that the Christ, well, it seems kind of actually right to say that that's the case. Right, Jesus? No, he's, he's setting them up here. Now, let's look at verse 37, because here's the other question, right? David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? So when you read that, you're like, okay, yeah, he's, he's a son of David, but then David calls him Lord. What? What's going on here? No. Okay, I'm going to nerd out with you for a second. This is something in rabbinical circles called Haggadah. Not Haggadahs. Haggadah. Love me some Haggadahs. Mint chocolate chip all the way, baby. So, but Haggadah. Haggadah. So, I love that word, Haggadah. And so, what is Haggadah? You know, next cocktail party. Haggadah. Haggadah was this um, rabbinical way of teaching using questions. And so, you would take uh, two seemingly contradictory things and you would connect them together. And in connecting them together, you see, ah, they're not contradictions. Now, here's why this is important. See, in verse 36, look at verse 36. Verse 36, this is what uh, David says. So this is the quote. We read this earlier in the, in the service, Psalm 110. We read all Psalm 110, but this is one of the verses. It says this, David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So, so then the second question happens. And the word there for Lord is Adonai. It means Lord of Lords in the heavens. Not, not just like, you know, Master Lord. No, this is Lord of Lords. So David, the greatest king of Israel, prophetically is saying, there's someone coming after me who's even greater. And so now I want you to see Haggadah. I want you to see this, this, this tension here that, he, that he's, he's unraveling. See, the scribes have been saying all along, hey, we're looking for the son of David. And Jesus basically says, you're not incorrect, but you're inadequate. It, it, it can't be just that I'm the son of David. That's why David himself said he's more than me. This is really important in our day and age. Let me tell you why. There are a lot of places, especially in urban environments, there are a lot of worship places that you could go to where you're going to hear a lot of Jesus is the son of David. Jesus was a great man. He was a great teacher. He was a great prophet. And Jesus would have said, yeah, I am all those things. But it's inadequate. You see, you need more than a great teacher, more than a great moral example. You see, what, 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 what Jesus is saying is, if that's all you have and how you think of me, it's inexplicable. The scriptures are, don't make sense. 
But it's clear the Scripture is saying, no, no, no. The Messiah will be more than that. And so we, we rob Jesus, we demote Him of His power and His glory when all we see is a prophet and a messenger and a teacher and a moral example. And yet you can find plenty of places in this world today that's all they do. Now, not here at City Church, as you know, right? And, but this is what Jesus is, is doing. He's saying, let me explicate what looks inexplicable. Haggadah, right? And here's the problem. And we've seen this all along in the series, haven't we? Over and over and over again. Jesus, they're hoping, right? This is Peter and the disciples. They're hoping, man, you're going to be an amazing political leader. Uh, you're going to be an amazing military leader. You're going you're gonna to help us get rid of the, the Romans. And, and you're going to help us you know, purify the temple maybe with the religious leaders because we don't like them as well. But the point being is that the, the religious leaders themselves were saying, look, we're expecting a political Messiah. And Jesus says that's the wrong kind of Messiah. That's a demotion. We need something better than politics. We need something better than our military prowess. We need something better than that form of greatness, you see. What do we need? What Jesus is doing here in Haggadah. I love, uh, you know, about a week's time, some of you know this, I, I love movies. Uh, I told someone, I think it was some Christian, I was like, yeah, it's a lot easier to get through something than like a whole series that takes like 20 hours to do. Like, I like a movie, storyline, done. We're, you know, move on, kind of thing like that. Well, next week, Ridley Scott's new film, Napoleon, is coming out. And I have a mixed relationship with Ridley when it comes to his films, just being honest. He wouldn't know that, but I'm just saying it right now publicly. And, and, and you know, but this one looks really good. So it's the story about Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte, right? And, and so uh, I've been fascinated by the character of Napoleon over the years because I mean, he's amazing. As you, you know, my love of history, politics, like he blends the two together and he was an amazing military strategist. I mean, people today still study the works of Napoleon when it comes to his strategies. And so I'm really, really interested about this film. But, but as you know, eventually he, lo- he lost, right? You do know that he lost Waterloo, 1815. Everyone's got to have their Waterloo. Well, he had his. And they, they, they send him to this island called St. Helena. It's the middle of nowhere in the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, you can't go any further in the Atlantic before you start going back to somewhere else. I mean, it's just so far away. And so they're like, the British were like, we don't want to ever deal with Napoleon again. And so we're putting him on the island where he will be in exile. And of course, he will die. But towards the end of his life, he was in this correspondence with, uh, with some different people. And somehow the, the issue of Jesus came up. And, and, and this, this one guy was writing him and saying, look, I, I think Jesus was an incredible leader. I think he was an incredible moral example and a teacher. He's one of many religions, uh, amazing guy, that sort of thing like that. Listen to what Napoleon, now Napoleon actually, as far as I can tell, wasn't actually a Christian. Culturally, yes, but uh, based on his record in life, I'm not so sure I could go as far as to say he was, actually was, but he was right about Jesus here. Listen to what he said. I know men, so this is in his correspondence back to this dude. I know men, and I tell you, Jesus Christ was not a man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. That resemblance does not exist. There is between Christianity and other religions the distance of infinity. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and, well, myself. (laughs) Don't you love that? (laughs) I'm one of the guys. Uh, (laughs) Starting empires. You know, (laughs) founded empires. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Now listen to this. Upon sheer force. 
Jesus Christ alone founded His empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men will die for Him. In every other existence but that of Christ, how many imperfections? From the first day to the last, He is the same, majestic and simple, infinitely firm and infinitely gentle. He proposes to our faith a series of mysteries and commands with authority that we should believe them, giving no other reason than those tremendous words, I am God. How cool. <laughs> How cool. He's not wrong. Now that's, that's the... That's the let us not demote him. Let us not. Let us hold him in high esteem. For he rules the most vast and uncorruptible empire. And how does he do it? With love. Millions will die for him. Even today, as we speak, people die for him. Thanks be to God. We don't live in a world where typically we have to worry about martyrdom. But it still happens all around the world as we speak. Millions will die for him just like that. But why? Sheer force of love, as it were. And why would they do that? Because of his character. Because he's unlike any other king. King of kings, Lord of lords, Adonai here. This is the character of greatness. And already you can begin to see that it's different from the kind of greatness that we often are attracted to, which leads to the second thing, and that is the impoverished form of greatness, the impoverished empires of the world, let's say. Look at with me at verses 38 and 39. And in his teaching, he said, Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast. Now, what I think is so like, whoa, is last week David was preaching about this one scribe. He comes to Jesus and he says, man, what's the greatest commandment? And so they go back and forth on that. And remember what Jesus says? Jesus says, you're so close. Oh, you're right on the doorstep of reality. Now, can you imagine being that, you know, that scribal leader? Like the teachers of the law have been hammered by Jesus over and over again. And this one guy's like, oh, I'm, I'm pretty close. I'm doing pretty well here. Kind of thing like that. So don't you know, don't you know that he's in the audience just a few minutes later, right? And, you know, let me tell you about the scribes. And he's thinking, oh, oh. you know, sort of thing like that. And uh, instead he basically says, they suck. You know, okay, not quite like that. But what does he say? Now, that's what I want to break down here. Because what, it, what he says about the, the religious leaders makes me a little bit uncomfortable sometimes as a pastor. But what he says here, I think, is so much bearing for our world. Like, what is it that we seek more than anything else? A couple things here. This is what uh, impoverished means to, to be full of poverty, right? to be poor. And so what's a poor form of kingship, basically, is what he's getting at here. So he says a few things here. Number one, he says, well... They love the greeting. So in the ancient world, if you had a long flowing robe on you, it was a white robe typically, that would have been a sign of your stature and of your status. So in the ancient Near East, along with many other cultures back then, even today in some places in the world, honor and shame culture. And so how you dressed yourself was a, was a, uh, a communication basically of, of your honor and your status. And so they dressed in the robes and the expectation was in an ancient culture like Judaism, that as you walked around, uh, you were supposed to stand up 
um, in, in the presence of, of a scribe, of a teacher of the law, and you were to bow your head and say, Rabbi. And so this was just the, the pattern of the world. And so it says they, they loved it, is what Jesus says here. Like they, they, they consumed the greetings, as it were, in their flowing robes. And then it goes on to say they're looking for the best seats. Now, the best seats in the synagogue meant that, that uh, you sat. Um, I know I get the best seats. I sit on the front row here. That's a joke, obviously. Like, you guys don't like to ever sit on the front row of anything. But back in the day, like, people sat on the front rows. And, and the, like, the front row was actually up front here, and it was facing the congregation. I remember one time, like 10 years ago, I was at a church where I was, I was speaking at a conference, and I, it looked like throne chairs up on this, this pedestal, as it were, and I was so uncomfortable. Part of the reason why I was uncomfortable was I didn't know the songs that we're singing. There were no lyrics. And so everyone was watching me not know the song. So that was embarrassing. Different story for another time. But, you know, we don't live that day and age by and large. Like, I don't typically experience that as a pastor. Most people don't give me the better seats, as it were. Occasionally it still happens, and occasionally I like it. But the point here is that this was common practice back then. And so they would sit in the front, and so they would be honored. They would be faded. And one of the ways was at the feast. And so they sat next to the host of the banquet as the honored guest and everyone else in an honor and shame culture. You either didn't sit at, sit at the table at all or you sat at the very end. That kind of thing like that. So this is an honor and shame society, honor and shame existence. And if you're a religious leader, you were on the inside, right? Outsiders, you didn't know who they were because they didn't show up to things like this. Outsiders were the widows. Oh, we can get that in a second. Uh, they were the poor often who were widows. They were people that are non-Jewish, of course, and so forth. And, and so this is what Jesus is going after here. He's saying, look, you are status hungry. Now, Scott, are you saying that there's a problem with status? No, I'm not actually. God has made us for greatness. Remember what I said. But the problem is where do we seek status here? We, we see, as they did, I think this is our story. We seek it in external trappings to make a name for ourselves. I remember a few months ago, I was, um, I was reading a news story about this TikTok video. Maybe you heard about it. This, um, these two girls in Bali, Indonesia, were videotaped. They're TikTok influencers, which I don't know how you become an influencer, right? You know, I don't know what the standard is, but they were influencers, evidently. And, and they were picking up trash on the beach and being filmed. So one influencer was filming the other one, and they, they, they flip it, right? So they would, the next person. So they're putting the trash. You watch the video. Like they're putting it in there, and, and uh, they're putting it over their backs and kind of walking like it's heavy, you know, that sort of thing like that. Now, evidently, the behavior seemed a little bit unusual. Someone else is filming them. And that's the video I saw. And, and what they do was as soon as they get filmed, they drop the trash, they leave it on the beach, and they start to walk away. And, yeah, I'm not kidding. And the title of the video was, was this. It was How to Care for the Environment. That was the name of the TikTok video. And they're just, like, leaving the trash on the beach. And the person behind the other camera who's filming them says, Hey, hey, you left your trash. And they look around. They realize they're caught. And they're like, they skedaddle it out of there. Like, it's, it's crazy. But, like, that's, that's the world that we live in. It's like we are, we are so hungry for status. We're so hungry for the likes. And yeah, none of us are going to probably do that, on, at least not on TikTok platforms. But the reality is all of us have that inside of ourselves. We, we have an impoverished empire with that. That's just what I want you to hear. We have an impoverished empire. We want, we want, maybe it's our kids, maybe it's our colleagues at work. 
right? But we want status. We're hungry for it. And Jesus would say, you're made for status, but the problem is you look for it in the wrong places. And here's what happens. Here's how you know that you're looking for status in the wrong place. Okay, here, here it is, right? That's not it. Okay, it's not James 127. We can take that down. All right, here's what it is. It's advantaging yourself and thereby disadvantaging other people. That's it right there. It's like, so status causes you to, in a, in a sense of like dignity, I'm somebody, that kind of thing like that, and you're a nobody. And we, most people don't say things like that, but we can't help it. I think I'm not alone. Sometimes we feel that way. You feel me on that one? Like it, it's easy to do, isn't it? It's easy to do. We get celebrated. We get lauded, faded, and, um, and we can feel pretty good about ourselves. And, and Jesus says, man, in this religious world, Religious leaders are doing it all the time. Let me tell you, it's still true 2,000 years later. Like, I see it all the time in, in religion. I see it among fellow pastors all the time. Yeah. But Jesus is not done. He says it's not just that, is that you're impoverished because you're status-seeking. It's also that you're greedy. That's verse 40. Listen to it. He says, who devour widows' houses. So he's talking about them again. And for a pretense, make long prayers. Now, this is fascinating because he's saying two things. He's saying they pray like this, and then they pray, P-R-E-Y, at the same time. They pray and they pray, and neither are holy, he says. And what they meant in the ancient world was you would have, if you're a widow, that is, you wouldn't have much. And remember, there's no social safety net the way that we have today, Social Security, Medicaid, and things like that. And so if you're a widow, whatever nest egg you have, you gave to the temple. And it was the responsibility of the temple to ensure that you were taken care of for the rest of your life. So it's kind of like an ancient form of Social Security. But it was the temple that would register it. It was the temple that would take care of it. And what does Jesus know about the religious establishment? They're lining their pockets. Man. So, again, this is not something that just happens today among pastors sometimes, to be honest. Hard to say that, but it's true. But it's also true 2,000 years ago. It's like, wait, what kingdom are you looking for that you would steal from impoverished widows? And Jesus says that's the definition of poverty itself. You call yourself religious, but you're spiritually poor. And empty. And then he says, you know what he says there? They're going to receive the greatest condemnation. Now, Jesus talks about judgment a lot. But he talks about judgment with religious leaders more than anyone else. James 3.1 says those of us who are religious leaders were held to a higher standard. I get it now. I'm going to tell you. Because people assume the deference construct. You know what the deference construct is? It means you defer to me. You, when I stand up here and I preach, you, you, you make the assumption, well, I think Scott knows what he's talking about. But you can see where false teaching comes from pretty easy, like you know, just slightly off or even a lot off. You, know, like, and you can take people the wrong way. That's why we're held to a higher standard. And so Jesus slams them because as religious leaders, they should be setting and modeling an example of his kingdom. And instead, they do the opposite. And so listen now to what James 1, 21, 27 says. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. It is to look at the poor and the powerless, to the marginalized, to those who don't matter in our world, in our society, and to celebrate them. 
to, to point them out, to, to honor them, to bring them out of the, the muck and the mire of our world that doesn't take notice of them. You see, the coin of the impoverished realm is status, wealth, power, and everything that goes with that. And Jesus says, the coin of my realm is mercy. The coin of my realm is compassion. You see, beautiful, isn't it? And, and what's crazy here is what happens in verses 41 through 44. This is where we're going to end. Now, remember, two, three stories. And, and we're saying, you know, how are these all connected? Listen to what he says here about the widow. So he just went through talking about the devouring of the widow's resources. Now, look what he does here regarding a widow. And he sat down opposite the treasury. So he's just finished slamming the religious leaders. Now, he sits down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Drop the mic. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, a few weeks ago, we were preaching on the rich young ruler. And, of course, rich young ruler says, I want to follow you. And then Jesus says, okay, great, just give up everything. And he's like, uh, on second thought, uh, you know, then he walks away sad, the text says. And do you remember what it says about the disciples? Do you remember the disciples said, well, if he can't get into heaven, who can? Now, you think to yourself, what? Why in the world is he saying that? Why are they saying that? Well, here's why. Because if you had wealth and you had status and you believed in God, it was very clear God loves you. Oh, you're one of his favored sons. That's the rich young ruler. What is Jesus saying? Oh, no, quite the opposite. Quite the opposite here. See, and I think that's our world today. Because right now, as we speak, if you want to be well-known, give away a lot of money. No, wait a minute. Hold on. What does that have to do with what Jesus is saying here? Hold on a second. Give away. Like, so philanthropy is in part based upon this. Now, there's, I'm not dissing philanthropy. I want you to hear that. Like, we, we need it. It's good for universities and other settings, for not-for-profits, right? It's important. But for most people, we give out of abundance. That's what Jesus says. We, most of us give out of abundance. And if you are super wealthy, like they will name a building on a university campus after you. You give $10 million, I guarantee you, you're going to get more than a park bench. Uh, you're like, you're going to have your name you know, forever inscribed on that building for as long as that building's standing at least. That sort of thing like that. And I think, yeah, that's, that's our story. That's our kingdom. We are so attracted to the power of big gifts. And what does Jesus say here? This is remarkable. This is the mic drop. He says, no, no, she has given more than all of them. Now, let me say something to all of us today. Okay? Now, I put, these, I put the, the schedule together for what I was going to preach like 18 months ago. I had no idea we're going to be at their place we are financially right now in our church life. Right? We've got the family meeting coming up. It'll give you an update on that December 3rd. But as many of you know, this has been the hardest year in 18 years of existence. For us, and and um, and so I would be very clear here on this. Jesus is not dissing giving from abundance because, like I said, for most of us in here, 
That's what does. And here, here's why I say that. Here's what that means. What does it mean to give from abundance? Okay. To give from abundance means it doesn't change your lifestyle. That's the definition. So it doesn't matter the size of your gift. You could be a millionaire this morning and you could give away a lot of money, but it won't change your lifestyle. Jesus is not talking about that. When he says she's given away everything and she's given to more than all of them combined, financially that makes no sense. What does it mean? It means she gave her life away. Radical generosity. And here's why I connect that what I said about our church community right now. If you were to tell me, Scott, here's the choice. Um, through a pleas of giving, we're going to double the amount of giving that you receive this next year. But it's going to come from abundance. Or you're going to scrap by. You're going to, you're going to just make ends meet, make sure we make payroll and so forth. But the type of giving will be radical. And it's going to change lifestyles in a, mil, a million times over and over again. I'm going to choose the latter, not the former, for us. Why? Because tithing is important. Is if you're not tithing, let me just say right now, you need to start. Because it's a commandment from the scriptures, okay? Tithing, the tenth is what that means. It's to give away uh, to, to his kingdom. So that's the beginning point. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He says tithing won't necessarily change your life. It won't necessarily change you spiritually. What does? Radical generosity. That's what he's saying here. He's been talking about me this whole time as a religious leader. Now I want to make you feel uncomfortable too, along with me here. Like, can you feel it when I say that? Can you feel it? You better. Because I feel it. Yeah, radical generosity. That would change how we possibly live. And he says, yes. What makes us fearful of that is like we get so comfortable in our lifestyles. He says, but you don't understand. When you become radical in your generosity... Oh, it's going to change how you live, but not in the way you think necessarily. Or in, in addition, it's going to change how you live. This, this is what the kingdom, my kingdom is about. This is the coin of my realm. This radicalness. Being, being able to say, what was she doing? She was giving it to the temple. Remember, so the, the presence of God, she said, I entrust my whole life. The word there, by the way, in verse 44 about that is bios. It means to give, like her whole life is what was, Jesus is saying, I want you to give your life away. I want you to not leave anything behind. So when we tithe, what we're saying is we give a portion, but what we're ultimately saying, if we're tithing from a place of right motivation, that's what Jesus cares about after all. He's like, Jesus, you can have it all. You, you take it. Whatever you want. So it's not just about the tithe. It's about, about my, my generosity in general. Like, you just take whatever you want. Change my, I want to follow you. And if you say, like the rich young ruler, give it all away, I'll give it all away. I mean, how many of us hear that and say, whoa, hold on a second. Yeah, that's, I feel the rub. I want you to know I feel that right now as I preach that to you. But I can't get away from it. I think it's what he's saying here for us. So here's the invitation. Here's where we're going to conclude. Okay. We sit at a fork in the road in a passage like this. We know that we're made for greatness. And Jesus says, let me tell you what greatness looks like. It's to give your life away. All of it. Just to say, my hands are open, Jesus. Take, Holy Spirit, convict me, whatever, con- my conscience. Like, take it and use it and leverage it for the world. Why? Because we have eternity waiting for us. This is nothing, not even a blip in the scheme of things. Like, we don't, we have no idea the wealth that is waiting for us. 
It, it, nothing in this world can compare to the wealth that we're going to experience. And therefore, he's saying, risk it all today. Risk it all today. And, and here's the connection. Remember, I told you, it was like, it's not a hodgepodge. Here's the seamless message of greatness. We're all made for it. How do we get it? Ready for it? This woman put in more than merely two coins. And Jesus, two days later, would put in more than merely the son of David. Outside the temple, what does he do? He gave his whole life away. He who was rich became poor so that you and I would be made rich and wealthy and so that we could be at a place where we could say, Jesus, not just my treasure, but my time and my talent. Please hear me on that. It's not just about money. The whole self, time, talent, treasure. Jesus, take it all. Use it, leverage it however you want. Gosh, what a radical message. But he himself did it. Philippians chapter 2, listen to verses 5 and 7. Paul celebrates this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he gives up empire. He gives up the impoverished empire. Then he says this, but emptied himself. He put in everything into the treasury at the temple. By taking the form of a servant, a slave, being born in the likeness of men. You want greatness? Let me leave you with three questions. Okay, three questions. Just to think about this way. Just think about them. And that, lay them before the Holy Spirit. Write them down if you want. And then lay them before the Holy Spirit and say, God, what do you want to do with these three questions? Number one, today, would you say you're more like the religious leaders, the teachers, or like the widow? What better describes who you are? Second, how do you handle money? What would if someone looking in your pocketbook today, what would they say? What would they say is true about, about your motivations for, for where you spend and what you give away? Then lastly, what are your two pennies? What are your two copper coins? Like we live in a world where, where control is powerful. Comfort is powerful. And Jesus says, yeah, what are your two pennies? What do you want to do with them? How do you want to put them in my treasury to entrust me with your life? And imagine what Jesus could do to sit at church in the days ahead. Yeah, we've been through some tough financial stuff. And, you know, COVID was incredibly hard, hard as hell for me in many ways and for a lot of us in here. But our best days are ahead of us because of this, because of radical generosity and because Jesus wants to change us from the inside out. And so let us lean into that kingdom. Let's lean in here to his empire, to his empire of love. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we um, what, what looked like a hodgepodge turns out to be a, a big, uh, big message to us today um, about how we're going to live our life with our time and our talent and our, our treasure. And I, I stand before my congregation not as someone that's different, but someone who's right there with them, and I can feel the weight of that question. Um, So, Jesus, would you change my heart and would you change our hearts so that we could hold on to these things just a little bit more loosely? We could hold on to our pocketbooks, to our wealth, and holding on to our time and our talent just to let these things go and to let them go because they pale in comparison to what's ahead of us. So, uh, 
Father, I pray, would you just change your hearts from the inside out? Holy Spirit, come and do your work. Jesus, thank you for your radical generosity first to us. For his name, amen.